This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. Talking about climate change is important, but not with the doom and gloom scenarios presented by mainstream media. Environmental Voices Rising brings you conversations with women environmental leaders, women who are taking on the challenges of climate change and working on solutions in their communities. The climate change conversations we have at Environmental Voices Rising are about what we can do to fix things. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. We invite you to listen to the podcasts, subscribe on our website, evoicesrising.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Join us, listen in, and find a place in your community to support because yes, you can make a difference. Thank you for joining us today and adding your voice to Environmental Voices Rising. This podcast was recorded a few weeks before Hurricane Ida slammed into the southern state of Louisiana and then made its way up the coast, dropping record-shattering amounts of rain in the urban areas of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Infrastructure and sewer systems were quickly overwhelmed. Flash floods occurred with waters rising fast and high. Streets became rivers and many people died, drowned, or trapped by rising waters. Parts of this podcast now seem prescient because my guest Stacy Levy and I talked about water in urban areas and dealing with rain events that will become more common, challenging urban cities in the days and weeks to come. But in the case of Ida, they already have. Please join us with this conversation. This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and today I am really happy to have a conversation with Stacey Levy, an environmental artist who has a very special relationship with water. She's leveraged her experience and observation skills of water in urban cities to create her art, and she has a celebrated career making large-scale processes that work with the natural processes of water. Her works address climate change, in ways that are both educational and functional. That is, Stacy's art actually does something, like cleaning polluted water, as well as being beautiful and educational. Our primary topic today is about water, specifically urban water, environmental artists and engineers who are working on creating solutions. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, thank you, wonderful to be here. I'd love to get started with your initial experiences and relationship with water, because it is a special relationship that you have with water. Tell us how that informed your career and your artwork. You studied sculpture in school, and your projects all have sculptural elements. But did you always work or think about working with large-scale installations? Well, it's interesting when you ask that question, it makes me think back to the very, very beginnings of when... I got excited about physical space and felt that somehow I wanted to make that kind of space. And I think it was the Tappan Zee Bridge in New York 
where it had a big curve over the water that got me very excited about the idea of architecture and water. I also spend been spending summers in Maine and being on a dock, a wooden platform, and able to watch the water, watching it from above and seeing what it's, how it's changing. We're all really instrumental in giving me the sense that I wanted to do something with the built form within a watery situation. And so I think that's just my earliest sense of why I wanted to be an artist was to make that sort of experience happen. The other thing is when I was little, I lived right up against a park, a city park, which was quite wild and wooded. And I used to play in a tributary that was wonderful fun to float sticks down and just to observe. And especially after rainstorms, it flowed tremendously forcefully. And I used to spend a great deal of time down in this tributary after rains, though it smelled really bad. And I wondered what that was. And later I found out that I was playing in sewage outflow oh my from goodness. the street <laughs> and the overflowing sewage system. It made me stronger because it didn't kill me. And so I think that was my first connection to the idea of urban water being thrilling, but also potentially polluted. And dealing with those two aspects of water, the elements of the scary and the beautiful, very much the sublime, that's the combination that creates sublime, is what made urban water so intriguing to me. And I think that's why I pursue it why it's so much part of my work. Thank you. I I know that the water in the cities is something, you know, that most of us aren't really familiar with. We don't know it. And there's a long history explaining why we don't, why it's all covered up. But going back to the art world, there's a long history in the art world that includes deep connections with nature and early land and the environmental artists or and art who are very sensitive and concerned and really just fell in love with the beauty of the natural world and wanted to preserve it. And then the environmental artists, more contemporary now, who were concerned and horrified about what was happening with climate change, and they wanted to create art that would bring awareness and sometimes shockingly to the problems. But what you're doing now is something really much more interesting, I think, because you're kind of moving on and you're up-leveling that position to saying that artists have a role in creating solutions. And that's what some of your projects do. Could you start us with the spiral wetlands? You have so many, but the spiral wetlands, which you created in 2013, also reaches back to the beginnings of eco-art, but It encompasses the vision that you have now, which is to have art be a part of the solution because these are constructed wetlands that are cleaning the water. So tell us about that. Well, that's an interesting project because it points directly at something that always haunted me. I spent a lot of my career looking at the spiral jetty by Robert Smithson, which is a beautiful piece, but I couldn't figure out why it didn't sit well with me. And it was whenever there was a an article being written about me, for some reason, there would always be a little picture of the spiral jetty, too. And it's like, hmm, how am I different and how am I the same from that? And those earlier land art pieces are beautiful. They're evocative, but they're not about the same thing that I'm about. And it took me a while to figure this out. 
They're very heroic pieces, these wonderful gestures in the landscape. But it was more about man meets landscape, not a caring look at what the landscape is doing over time. And I feel like I've always wanted to put natural processes ahead of my interior narrative. I don't want to go out in nature and make a grand heroic gesture. I want to explore and talk about and educate people about natural processes and then possibly make a change so that something works better than it's working. It either helps with pollution issues or helps with erosion issues. The the art could actually be a kind of tool instead of just a statement. And I've been very interested in that, though I've often been daunted in my career by people who tell me, well, if art does something, then it's no longer art. It must be something else like design. And my feeling is that that's a very silly line to draw because it's absolutely meaningless to say that art can have no arms to do anything with, that you're just supposed to sit there and look beautiful. (laughs) That's a silly thing to say to an artist, I think, as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, but it actually has been said. I almost lost funding because the board was worried that what I was making with Spiral Wetland was not officially art because it had a function. But I really believe that art needs to do a little bit more work these days. I have to say that I went to Quaker school from kindergarten through 12th grade, and I think I was instilled with a sense that art was a nice thing to do on the weekends, but what was your real work going to be about? And I spent the rest of my life trying to make art make sense to the sort of Calvinist practical sense I had of I should be doing something, I should be correcting the wrongs. So I think my Quaker education fed into that tremendously. But after a while, I saw that there's no reason that art can't function as well as look a certain way. I mean, my art has always functioned as an educational tool, as a way of bringing people into the experience and giving people a new understanding. It's basically a storytelling technique that brings a viewer into a new relationship with nature that they might not have had before, usually a very specific aspect of nature, like hydrology or what is carried in the wind or bird migration. But in this spiral wetland, I really wanted to go ham on making a functioning water pollution prevention machine that also looked beautiful and evocative and would catch the eye of onlookers. Engineers have often sort of cornered the market on solutions, and artists are just oftentimes seen as decorators. I wanted to bring the visual together with the function to make something that would make you look twice, but then you would sort of, in your second look, you'd understand that things are changing. This artwork is actually changing a situation that's problematic. In the case of Spiral Wetlands, it's a wonderful city-owned lake, which is really about 10 minutes from the center of Fayetteville in, in Arkansas. So you people go there for lunch, which is great. And people go fishing in their lunch hour, which in a city, I think is just such a wonderful thing. But because it's in an urban situation and it's surrounded by houses where everyone wants a really green lawn, so they have chem lawn come and put 
all sorts of chemicals on their lawn, which rolls right into their lake and turns it green. And their lawns look terrible, but the lake looks brilliantly green. I don't think Chemlawn expected that outcome. But that mm. was the problem. It's over nutrification. Certain chemicals like nitrogen so and phosphorus. So it's the runoff when like... Are, exactly. It's yeah. the runoff that is rolling off of the green lawns into the lake. When people are watering their lawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, it grows a tremendous amount of algae, which takes the oxygen away from the fish that everyone wants to have because they want to pull out of the water and eat that night. So it's actually a somewhat standard water pollution technique to have a floating wetland, which basically increases the wetland possibilities and the wetland filtering system, which is how wetlands clean the water. It's not just the roots. We often think it's the roots, but it's the bacteria that's growing on the roots that is actually absorbing digesting the nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen and getting rid of it, taking it, and then the plant takes it up into their plant matter. So it's a great sponge-like filter, sort of like having a Brita water filter in the middle of your lake. And I wanted to take this system and make it appear in some very evocative way. And Smithson's spiral was simply haunting me. And I thought, hmm, I think I'll take this process and I'll put it into the spiral. So it was a it was an homage to Smithson, but in a very more feminized way. I'm not putting sixteen thousand truckloads of boulder basalt boulders out there. I'm having a floating living system that's out on the lake that is great habitat for birds above and for fish below, and it's growing and changing. But it is in the form of that heroic spiral. So I've seen pictures of the spiral, and it's quite large. I think you said it was 300 feet long. Tell us about the collaborative process that you used to get this huge structure into the lake, which then became a water filtering system that was cleaning the algae or the chemicals that had come from the runoff from the lawns into the lake. Right, and it's cleaning the chemicals out of the lake, it's not actually going to remove the algae. You'd need something like carp to do that. But the algae starts with those chemicals. It feeds on those chemicals. Right. So all of these projects take a tremendous amount of people, a real village to get them built. And because art budgets are very small, much smaller than engineering budgets, it takes a lot of very kind participants who want to be part of a community of building a big artwork. And I had wonderful support in Arkansas with all sorts of different ages and people from the art institution, the Walton Art Center that was supporting the piece and people from the community, landscape architects, other engineers, surveyors. I even had divers who were diving to make sure that my anchors were perfectly aligned who volunteered, which was really great. So it takes a lot to make something like this happen because it is functioning and because it has to live through a lot of different weather. This piece was up for an entire year and lots of ice and wind came at it. It was engineered to withstand these things, but that means it's made with very robust materials and needs to be fabricated and, and then installed very carefully. And so I had this great crew that was wrapping the native plants in little burritos of coir, the coconut fiber, and then putting them in pots and then putting the pots into this 
wonderful floating closed cell foam that's used for floating wetlands in all sorts of sewage treatment plants. And then we paddled it out with kayaks and a motorboat too in pieces and then structured it out in the lake and anchored it very carefully. And off it went. There it was, living on the surface of the lake. It became fabulous habitat for birds, which was somewhat unexpected on my part. I knew it would be great for fish because it would create shade. And I knew that the fishermen were going to really like having this artwork out there because it was going to increase fish habitat. But I didn't realize how many birds it would draw to it. And the Audubon Society was out doing bird watching and had seen a number of species they hadn't seen before in this area. So that was really a great asset to the piece. That's wonderful. Can I ask why can't these projects stay up longer? Or how why can't they be designed to be actually more long-term? They could be, and it was designed to last as long as someone's looking after it. All engineered projects need are sort of like pets, and they need someone to look after them. You can't just throw something out there and expect it to run perpetually. So we were going to have a conservation group look after it, but they were having some structural problems with just getting their group together, and they felt that they weren't going to be able to look after it. So what we did was create a second life for the project, and we divided up the sections, and a lot of people adopted them and took them directly to ponds on their property to wetland retention basins that they knew about, or we stripped out the plants and replanted them along the shoreline also. So it was a process that had one direction it was going to go and it it went another direction, but all the plants are now living in various places. And I think that kind of responsibility to your materials and to make sure there's a second life for the plants is really important. You don't want to just dispose of everything. You want to really find a home for things. And that that takes a lot of thinking to try and figure out how is this going to live on. Now, these wetlands do actually live in places. There are people and sewage treatment areas that use these forms in all sorts of ways and keep them going, but they require maintenance. And maintenance is always the thing that nobody wants to do. I wanted you to talk a little bit about why engineers need artists. Why do they need you at the table? (laughs) Engineers... (laughs) When they're working on the built environment. (laughs) Engineers have beautiful minds, but their training can be very narrow. And they are, even though they learn new technologies, they're not learning new ways to think. And here's the heroic problem once again. I think they see themselves as saving the situation from all the other designers, the architects, the landscape architects, that they're going to get it right. And that kind of narrow thinking that you're going to save the day with your engineering is probably the worst thing that's happened to engineers. If they would share their expertise and be open to other ways of seeing the world, they would soar. Engineering would become amazing. But they're just a little narrow-minded, mostly because of their training. And young engineers are coming up in schools, and I speak to a lot of engineers, are totally open and ready for this kind of work, this kind of interdisciplinary work, where you 
take off your engineer's hat and you put on an artist's hat for a meeting. And I do the same. I become a semi-engineer and I'm talking about how to make something be attached to an anchor. And we're really brainstorming together. So I think that the most important things that the next phase that engineers need to take is to be listening and responding to other ways of thinking. The real thinking outside of the box will happen when engineers open up the edges of the box and let everyone in. I also think that's a really important new part of what the next phase of art is going to be. That it's not going to be about going up into your studio and making something and bringing it down to the world and saying, here it is. It's going to be more about working within the structures that are out there in the world, different communities, different issues that they have, and different kinds of situations. And when art is able to embrace the situation, it's going to be a very strong thing, too. This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and our guest today is environmental artist Stacy Levy. We invite you to stay with us as we continue our conversation about learning to live with rain and water in urban cities. So, really good points on opening up to interdisciplinary ideas. In addition to being an artist and an occasional engineer, you have a unique perspective on water, probably beginning with your watching the sticks float down the creek during the rain events. So I'd like to ask you about the rain because you've made an interesting point about the climate change conversation, which has quickly gone to sea level rise and not so much about the rain events that happen in cities because so much of the land has been asphalted over and we don't pay attention to it. Tell us about that and how you are thinking of how we can live with rain in cities. Yeah, well, climate change and now climate crisis became a touchstone when we thought about what will be flooded by the rising oceans. So it was very attached to this idea that the seas will rise and flood our coastal cities, which is, in fact, is going to happen. It's happening right now. But in a certain way, we focused on that visual, which is very powerful, the idea of the sea encroaching on the land that we've built and cherished, our Manhattan shoreline, our New Jersey houses, the main coast, all of these places are going to be changed by sea level rise give people a really evocative sense of what climate change means. But we forget the other aspects of climate change, which are that we're going to be getting a lot more rain. We're going to be getting a lot more drought in certain areas. And in the wet areas, we're going to be getting more rain and it's going to come at a a more intense frequency. So there's going to be more flooding. And we've already covered up our suburban areas and our urban areas with impervious paving. So there's nowhere for the present day water to flow. There's certainly not going to be a place for the new amount of rain to flow. So we're going to be suffering a lot more flooding. But that hasn't been pictured as much as sea level rise has been. I think it's harder to get your head around, but it's going to be extremely pervasive because it's going to happen in a lot of places that 
haven't really thought about their relationship with water before. If you own a house on the shore, you are often thinking about things like hurricanes coming in. But if you are in the middle of a continent, you're not thinking about being encroached upon by water. But rivers are flooding more than ever, and streams are flooding. And this kind of smaller water is what I've been referring to as the slow tide, where we're going to have to live with a lot more high water in our internal, our interior cities and suburbs, which will come in and then slowly lower as the flood dissipates. And then it will happen again on the next rainstorm a month later or so. So I think dealing with where rain is going, how much rain needs to be processed, which means to soak into the ground, are going to be the real issues of most cities that are not directly on the coast. Though it is to be remembered that part of what made Sandy so difficult in New York was not only was there a a lot of rain, which was coming out of the sky, but there was a a king tide, which was the tides were forcing more water up onto the shore. And that convergence of vertical water and horizontal water are what's going to be really problematic in our future. So you also have some projects that specifically address this as well, like rain catchment and breaking up some of that asphalt and creating these kind of like meandering spaces where you can actually grow plants. What what are some of those projects like? Well, I think it's really important to the idea that our urban structure can drink a lot more rain than we've given it a chance to do. And that we have to find places for rain to soak in everywhere that we can find it because we're a little short on space in most cities as a place to put rain. So we need to constantly be reimagining where the rain is going to go. And I feel so strongly that we need to be creating new ways to live with the rain that are happier and more compatible with what we want, how we want to live. I'm not saying that we want to live ankle high and in a pool of mud, but we could be raised above that mud and the mud could be allowed to um, basically infiltrate and dry out and we would still stay dry if we could just construct the way we live with rain to be more effective for humans and for rain too. So I'm very interested in finding places where we can live better with rain in a built way, in our built structures. And so I'm often building little moments of that. Pier 53, on the, which is the Washington Avenue Green in Philadelphia, is an example of that. It was done with uh, wonderful engineering and landscape architecture and ecological restoration firm called Biohabitats. And what I proposed was to cut into the existing asphalt and concrete and create these sort of rain runnels and rain gardens within the parking lots. Like, why can't parking lots do two things, be a place to park cars and a place to absorb the rainwater and let it infiltrate? So the project of breaking down that complete piece of parking lot and allowing it to be more generous and more sharing of itself with the rain was the goal there. And it's been quite effective. It's a wonderful rain garden. And if 
people have to park over it. They can actually park over the runnels fairly easily. So learning to live with wetness and with sogginess is becoming the key thing for design in my book. And I'm trying to poke a way forward so that we can start to rethink how we live with rain. Thank you. I really like this idea of learning to live with rain, to live with the natural processes instead of covering everything up with asphalt. I know that another way that you are poking at this is with your living water maps. This is where you take old maps that show where creeks once flowed in the cities where we live that are now buried under roads and streets. I've resonated with this so much because I love maps, and I have looked at some of the old ones where I live just to see how much was once water, creeks, marsh, and wetlands. But with your Living Water Maps projects, you use the maps to draw on sidewalks where the creeks once were, and you get people to help you so that they can learn about this as well. So tell us about these maps, the ones you did in 2020 and 2021 in New York City. I'm really interested in this idea that so much of the water in the city is not available to our view. It's running underground, and entire watersheds have been placed over the last 150 years into sewer pipes for the most part. So say under Brooklyn or Queens, there's an entire water system that's running through the sewer pipes instead of running freely in stream banks. Now, what's become very interesting is these streams that seemed historic and past are becoming very present. They're coming back to haunt us. When there's a big rainstorm in a city, the places that flood in the city are the places where streams used to run and often where the streams join. Strange intersections that go underwater very early on in a rainstorm. If you look at historic maps, it turns out that those are areas where streams used to run and they are currently running when it's raining and the water is leaping out of the sewer pipes because there's just too much water. And all of those streams are coming back kind of to haunt us because we're not ready for them. This idea that we don't know where our rain goes. You're walking down Fifth Avenue in New York and it's starting to rain and you have no idea where those raindrops are headed. It's very sad to me. I think it's really important to know where your rain goes because you become responsible to where it ends up instead of just passing the buck, which is the typical way. And I will say that engineers invented passing the buck because they've been taking the water out of cities and just dumping it into the nearest waterway, the nearest river, the nearest stream with a kind of impunity. And that needs to be changed. We have to be responsible for where the water goes. But I think the first step is teaching people about the watershed that actually still exists in the city, even though we can't see it. And also, even in suburban areas, The watershed is fairly invisible. I often think about how many roads we drive on are named after creeks, but you can't find the creeks because they're too far below or they've been paved over in places. So this way of navigating with roads, it covers up our navigation of the watershed. So I like to bring people out to find these creeks And it's very important to sort of collect water. I think that's from my trick-or-treat days where you sort of went door-to-door and you got some candy. 
collecting these waters kind of turns it into a kind of a holy water mission where you have to get this tributary and you will go anywhere to find it. And I think having that kind of mission around locating your local water is really great. And people seem very excited about it. And I really, I like to do it too. So what were some of the responses when you were actually doing the one in New York last year? We had a really interesting response. I often do these very temporary projects with NYC H2O in New York and and in the boroughs. And we were doing one in Manhattan on 64th Street. And at first, everyone was very suspicious. We're painting the path of the stream, a historic stream that I have pre-located to this street, and we're painting the path of where that stream is running, painting it with a very temporary chalk paint on the surfaces of the road, of the sidewalk. And at first, all the superintendents are out there looking quite skeptical at us. And then we start talking about what we're doing, and they all say, oh, you know what? I've worked at this building for 10 years and we've never stopped running the pump in the basement. And then someone else comes down the street and says, oh yeah, this is known as the mosquito block, which is an unusual thing because mosquitoes need a lot of open water to reproduce in. And so it's all starting to fit together that even though this is a typical street in Manhattan, it's still feeling its history as a stream bank. And The basements are flooding, mosquitoes are flourishing, and people are noticing that this is a sort of wetter strip in the city. And it turns out it's wetter because there's a creek that's running under the street. So that was a a really great moment of people realizing that their every day is being affected by historic creeks. Unbeknownst, we walk (laughs) the streets. (laughs) This is really great. Is there anything else you'd tell us what you're working on now or anything you're, yes, what you're working on now? Well, I'm working on actually a project in California, the Alameda Watershed Center, which is being built right now. It's up in Sunol, which is on the east side of the bay. And it's where San Francisco gets its water. This idea that water comes from the mountains and hills and hopefully some rain, which you've been very short on, and will come down. Snow melt. And and so I've been trying to show, I'm creating a map of stone that you can walk on so you can really locate yourself within the watershed. And that's a project. And I'm working on a project on the East River in Manhattan with the pavers of the very typical to New York City parks. There are these hexagonal pavers, and I'm taking them and printing them with images of diatoms that are also swimming in the East River as you're walking past them. So they're swimming one direction and you may be walking the other. And just seeing those amazing microorganisms, the architecture of these critters is incredible. And something, again, that we miss that we just don't see. So it's another invisible aspect of water. There are two invisible aspects I've noticed. The vastness of a watershed is very hard to understand. And then the tininess of microorganisms is something you simply can't see unless you have a microscope. So those two qualities about water are very invisible. And that's my job is to try and translate those components and make them somehow into a comprehensible story for people. Well, I appreciate that story as well. And thank you so much for saying that about the watersheds, because I agree that the vastness of a watershed 
sometimes can be daunting to understand the scope of it. And another aspect of water that I really love is its movement and always the constant changing, which is also part of a storytelling process. And that is an interesting thing that it's all about, water is always about change. It's, you want to fix it. And sometimes I have fixed these moments because I want to see the hydrology, the hydrological patterns of swirling vortices is so beautiful and it's always moving. You can't really get it. So sometimes you need to fix it, but mostly you need to talk about change. And art's great for talking about change. It's really site-specific works really can respond to change and show people what's going on with adding this kind of material visual component to the site. So I love the fact that art is a great tool to show change, but I also want it to be a tool that makes change and changes both how we live not so well with nature and helps to put back some of the things we've taken away, like infiltration or habitat. Thank you so much. I'm saying that a lot, but I really mean it because I appreciate all the work you have done and that you continue to do. So I always like to ask my guests if there are any other women environmentalists who have inspired you or who inspire you now. Could you tell us about them? Yes, the artist Aviva Romani is very inspirational to me. She's also about this idea that art can take a different role. And she works a lot with something that she's come up with called trigger points and how if you figure out where art can make change, you can set a lot of things into motion. So that's really important for me to understand that there's someone else out there is looking at that art is a tiny gesture, but you're hoping it's like the pebble that creates a lot of ripples. And But you need to do it within the natural process that you're interested in helping. You have to do it kind of correctly with an ecological understanding. And she's really worked hard to gain that knowledge and also to work with ecologists and biologists to do her work. And so I have a great admiration for her. Thank you so much. Yes, leverage points are very, you know, an interesting intersection into that process. So, Absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just would love to thank you again. And I really appreciate your, your work so much. Thank you for sharing with us about it. I think it was very informative. And I really, I just really appreciate your work. And thank you for sharing with us. Thank you so much. It's great to have the support. So much of my life is spent lonesome in a rowboat. It's really nice to hear from people who are, are getting it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. Subscribe to our website, evoicesrising.com, and add your voice to our growing network. We invite you to join us and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, this is the podcast that brings you stories about solutions to the challenges of climate change. Stay in touch for more episodes on sustainability in fashion, food waste, and intersectionality. We also invite you to find a place in your community to add your voice and make a difference. It's game on and time for all hands on deck. See you next time.